Behold the Lego brick, that hard-edged, candy-colored bit of plastic that's bedeviled barefoot parents the world over. By itself, a single discrete modular brick is inanimate, lifeless, or at least dormant. Only the eight little knobs atop the rectangular block and the three hollow tubes underneath hint at its potential. Snap two of those inert, inorganic blocks together, however, and suddenly you open up a world of nearly infinite possibilities. Just six bricks yield more than 915 million potential combinations. With an unlimited supply, you could build a supercomputer made up of 64 Raspberry Pi PCs and a thousand Lego bricks, a full-size Rolls-Royce aircraft engine, which was 152,000 bricks, a lovingly detailed recreation of the 2012 London Olympics, 250,000 bricks, or a life-size two-story house with a working toilet and shower, 3.3 million bricks, as others have already done. The company's values and creativity put it in an unmatched position within the toy industry. Kids loved the brick because it was fun, and parents loved it because it was educational. That combination helped LEGO amass decades of unbroken sales growth. But as LEGO approached the end of the 20th century, changes in kids' lives challenged the brick's primacy. Toyland became a far less forgiving place to do business as aggressive competitors fought fiercely for the growing legions of kids enamored with video games, MP3 players, and other high-tech wonders. Lego, largely an analog enterprise, found itself fading in a faster-moving, far more competitive digital world. While those prescriptions for 21st century innovation might have worked wonderfully for other companies, they almost sank Lego. In 2003, just three years after Fortune magazine and the British Toy Retailers Association had crowned the brick the toy of the century, the Lego group announced the biggest loss in its history. Its extraordinary collapse led many observers to wonder whether Lego, one of the world's most cherished brands, would survive as an independent enterprise. So today, we're going to be telling you about part two from the late 90s to modern day of the Lego story. This is going to build off some of the insights that we learned from last episode's book, which was the Lego story by Jens Anderson. And it's going to incorporate a lot of lessons as well from another book called Brick by Brick by David C. Robertson. So this will be an interesting episode because we're going to see the massive empire that Lego had created by the late 90s in the last episode. They are on the brink of bankruptcy now. They are struggling with unprofitable years, and they are starting to realize that they have been spread way too thin across numerous product lines. And we're going to learn how a new leader, a leader, the first person outside of the family, comes into Lego and saves them, turns around their company by employing many smart business practices that I think we could all apply to our own lives. So I'm excited to share and continue the story of the Lego group. Absolutely. And take a listen to our first episode if you haven't yet. 
It's a very interesting novel that tells the story of the first three generations of Lego. And it, it includes the inception of the company, which was over a hundred years ago. Hard to believe. It includes the patent of the classic Lego brick that we know and love today. And it tells us some interesting business strategies that Lego employed, including some co-promotion campaigns with McDonald's and other interesting partnerships. So if you haven't listened yet, please take a listen. But today we will be talking about 1998 and beyond the Lego story in the new century. You ready, Josh? Yes, sir. Let's jump right in. Just consider, it took Lego 46 years from its founding in 1932 until 1978 to hit 1 billion kroner in sales. Over the next decade, the sale chart slope rocketed upward, increasing fivefold by 1988. So this first full decade under Kell's leadership, 1978 to 1988, was actually quite prolific. And Kell's leadership as we see here, led Lego's revenue to increase fivefold. But we see at the end of this decade, around 1988, where things start to go awry a little bit, and Kelb gets a little bit too ambitious as the leader of Lego. By the end of this decade, he starts to expand into all different types of sectors, including electronics, which were just coming around at the time early 90s, mid 90s, and Kel thinks that Lego can also expand into electronics. And last episode, we talked how at this point, Kel has two options, right? He can compete directly with these electronics companies that are coming out with MP3, with software, PT games, all of this, or he can compete indirectly and really make Lego a different toy, right? Because these video games are taking the attention of kids in a different way. So here we see by 1998, in addition to Mindstorms and Cybermaster, Lego had launched so many other forward-thinking initiatives, software, parks, PC games, children's clothes, shoes, watches, and so on, that even Keld started to lose track. Confessing in the employee magazine that there were so many projects underway, we were wondering whether we can prioritize a bit better. Keld chose the route of trying to compete directly with these electronics companies, right? And with other companies, we see software, PC games, children's clothes. They're trying to do a lot at once and they're losing focus on what made them different in the first place, which was their Lego brick that they patented when Godfrey was the leader. Yeah, what's really concerning that we spoke about a bit on last episode, and we're really going to touch on a lot more in this episode. Some of the principal things that led Lego down the wrong path was losing focus and the over leverage. And this is really the first stage that we're seeing, losing focus. So you mentioned something that's really important with Keld. As the 90s evolved and some of those digital competitors came into the scenes, the likes of the Nintendos and Sonys and the video game department, the Disneys, the Apples, PCs, Microsofts, all of these competing sources 
of kids' attention, Keld became resolute that he wants to build an even bigger company. He wants to keep growing no matter the cost. So he set this vast goal for Lego. It was by 2005, he kept telling the company he wants Lego to become the biggest brand in the world. And we touched on last episode how the original founder, Keld's grandfather, Ole Kirk Christensen, he would always talk about how Lego has to be the ultimate source of quality. Only the best is good enough. It's all about mm-hmm. quality. So we're seeing in this era of losing focus, the chief issue was that they had stopped focusing on their quality and they were starting to focus on quantity. So this sentence that you read, Lego launched so many other forward-thinking initiatives, software, parks, PC games, children clothes, shoes, watches. You start to ask the question, why is Lego doing all this? Why aren't they focusing on their core business, that differentiated, monopoly-like, little plastic brick business that had been successful for so many years, since the 1930s or really the 1950s, when you consider that's when plastic was incorporated. And the big challenge was they were really hemorrhaging money pursuing all these new lines of business. They had to keep investing cash. It's like, imagine starting 10, 15 different startups within your business, and you're using that core brick business to fund all those other initiatives, whereas the core brick business had its own battle. It was battling with digital, so it couldn't afford to finance 10 other battles in the software world or launching more theme parks where you're taking on debt, you're leveraging yourself, PC games, clothing, you know, retail experiences, things of that nature. So this was really where we saw that Lego was not dying because of its starvation. It's not like it didn't have opportunities, but rather it had too many. It was the indigestion. It was trying to do too many things at once. And Josh, we see here that for the first time in Lego's 66-year history, the company was in the red. And you said this already, but it wasn't in a small way. They were in the red, 282 million kroner. Yeah. That's, That's a lot to break even. That is a lot. And especially for a family business where you consider... They may not have a ton of financial reserves or they're not public on the stock market. This is a company right. where if you're over leveraged and you start having multiple unprofitable years, that can get you in some serious trouble. You really have to fix that issue quickly. Otherwise, you may lose control of your company. And that was a very real threat for the family in this late 90s, early 2000s period. So. What did they decide to do? What can they do? 1998, they have their worst year in their history, their first unprofitable year since founding in 1932. Talk about that length of time. That's what, 66 years, I believe. Mm -hmm. They decide to go out and hire who they call the business doctor. He was a famous CFO. His name was Paul Plugman. And Paul Plugman would come in. His job was to make a ton of cost-cutting changes. He walked into Lego. He doesn't have the same attachment as some of the family leaders, although they're still technically in charge. Him as the CFO can come in and say, 
well, we need to fire a lot of people. So he goes and fires 10% of their staff. Oof. We have a ton of consultants. Let's just cancel all our consultants. What are we doing with all these consultants? So he reels in some of their expenses. He does bring down some of the expenses to basically stabilize Lego a bit. At least they're not in this financial brink period like 1998. But something really key about their contract with Plugman was the power of incentives. And this is something that Sancho, we spoke about during the same as ever episode with Morgan Housel, where we know incentives are the most powerful force in the world. So let me tell you why this is a little concerning to me. I could see already just from reading this, how this would lead to issues later based on the way that they incentivize Plogman. Plogman, who was given the title of finance director, formulated and initiated the mass layoffs of early 1999. But Lego was not about to hunker down and retrench. Plogman was promised a hefty bonus if he doubled the Lego group sales by 2005. He was recruited and incentivized to grow Lego out of its malaise. So you can see just from that quote alone, there was a clear incentive by Plogman, even though he's the cost-cutting new CFO in the company, that he still wanted to grow the company, even though all those initiatives, like we discussed, may have really spread them out way too thin. And it's something that the new CEO who's going to take over, we're going to touch on him a little bit later, but his name is Jürgen Vig Nudstorp. And in another interview, he was kind of reflecting on the biggest errors that Lego made during that time. And I thought this quote stood out in particular when you connect it to this incentive. He was asked practically, why did Lego pursue all these other initiatives if they weren't really working out and they have this great core business? Like, what was their goal with those initiatives? And Jurgen shared that you're basically making something that can't sustain itself. And you're hoping that, ah, if only I make another hundred, somehow it will solve itself. But it was to the roots of the proposition, not healthy. So the more we grew, the more we were losing. So we are seeing Jurgen Vignudstorp is basically telling us that Lego had this clear incentive. Plogman had this clear incentive to continue growing, yet they were not even profitable on any of those initiatives. So the more they grew, the more it hurt their business. But during this time, Josh, it wasn't all that obvious, right? This this short period once Plogman takes over from 1998 to 2002, Lego sees massive popularity and is kind of saved by a certain figure that we foreshadowed last time, that character being Luke Skywalker and the Star Wars brand. So in 1998, Lego actually made a pivotal partnership with Lucasfilm. So they were able to launch a series of Star Wars sets that would temporarily reinstate the company's profits. And again, this is that short period, 1998 to 2002. So 
these are actually now some of the biggest sets that Lego sells with you know, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Marvel, Spider-Man. And it's stated here that on the day the Phantom Menace premiered, 50,000 Lego Star Wars sets were to be sold in Toys R Us alone. And the sum total of Lego Star Wars products sold on American soil that year would reach $130 million. So our short-term savior is here, Luke Skywalker. Yeah, I, I really like that you bring that up, Sancho, because Luke Skywalker was essentially a real savior to the Lego company for a number of years. Like you said, things didn't look that bad. These incentives hadn't really played out yet because those Star Wars movies were on fire during the early 2000s and the late 90s. So that Phantom Menace movie came out. Star Wars became a hit. Lego realized that they could run great new lines of business for the core brick business. So this is more central to their thesis. They could run great new lines by licensing from the top content makers. They go out, they got an agreement with Lucasfilm. They got an agreement with Harry Potter. That's when some of the Harry Potter movies were coming out as well. So like you said, the financials did look solid, I would say, during the 2000 to 2002 period. But the problem is because things all looked good on paper, there wasn't a big unprofitable year like 1998, that caused Lego to keep doing those unhealthy habits, as Nudstorp said, keep investing in the verticals that just simply were not profitable. Even if you made more, even if you sold a hundred more units, fundamentally, they were not making money on these new initiatives. And these were initiatives like we talked about, like they started TV shows at that time. They were launching Lego books that they had financed themselves. They started new theme parks, three in the span of a few years, which you have to take on a lot of debt because it's such a CapEx heavy, you know, physical asset heavy investment. They were launching retail clothing, their own video games. And as we discussed last episode, their 3D brick software platform, which was Darwin, that was something that they had spent hundreds of millions on the project and bought up so many Silicon graphics computers that they felt like they had more than anywhere else in the world. So we're seeing that Lego is pursuing all those different verticals, continuing to lose its focus, even though Luke Skywalker and Paul Plugman seem to be the short-term saviors of the Lego company. In reality, that was just hiding some of the core problems. So I want to read this quote. I think it's important to understand why those short-term solutions wouldn't necessarily last forever. Buoyed by the over-the-top sales of Lego Star Wars and Harry Potter kits, in 2001, in the first half of 2002, retailers had doubled down on Lego for the Christmas season. Trouble was, neither a Star Wars film nor a Harry Potter movie was scheduled for 2003, so kids weren't primed for repeat offerings of Lego Yoda in Chamber of Secrets sets. So what's so important about this final quote is that we are seeing the true cyclicality for their top sets. All their retail partners, like imagine the Walmarts and Targets of the world, the people who 
have to buy up, build up inventory reserves of Legos. They had bought up all those Star Wars and Harry Potter sets. And then when the movie doesn't come and sales suddenly drop for those sets, it's a cyclical business. It's really pushed, fueled by the actual movies that sparks the demand. This is when the retailers get pissed off. They're like, well, now we're sitting on all this inventory. What are we supposed to do with all this extra inventory? And now Lego, if they had spent those last few years growing, thinking they have higher sales, they may have invested more and built up a higher cost structure. So now the second sales slow down, the real fear is that they may just slip right back into an unprofitable year. And that's exactly right, Josh. In just seven years from 1997 to 2004, the number of elements in the company's inventory exploded, ascending from slightly more than 6,000 to more than 14,200. So did its range of colors, which climbed from the original six, red, yellow, blue, green, black, and white, to more than 50. Wow. Yeah, as the number of components and colors mounted, soaring supply and production costs plundered the company's bottom line. So as you could imagine, before Lego was building the standard, what is it, two by four bricks. And they had a single machine to, to build all those bricks, and that was around 50 to 80K. But as they expanded their product lines and things got more and more complex, they got these complex machines to make the complex Lego brick. And <laughs> the, the Luke Skywalker band-aid was hiding the fact that this wasn't really going to pan out in the long run. Yeah, this is that higher cost structure just playing out in real life. They're investing more into, you know, thousands of different molding machines for more specialized pieces. And they're starting to realize that a lot of their individual sets, like their actual Lego building instruction sets, were unprofitable themselves because as they include more and more of these specialized pieces, those pieces have too high of a cost per piece. Yeah, it says here a dollar per piece in some of these sets because of how specialized they were. Yeah, and if you look at like the molding machine for a standard two by four brick, which like you said, it maybe costs 50,000 to 80,000 roughly, but that molding machine is going to be creating millions upon millions of two by four bricks over its lifetime. So basically over time, what you consider the marginal cost of that piece becomes very, very low. Maybe it's like a penny because if you could create 10, 20, 30, 50 million bricks out of that molding machine and you only paid 50,000 for it, then your marginal cost is incredibly low. Whereas if you're spending maybe 80,000, it's on the higher end for a specialty piece molding machine and Maybe that specialty piece is only included in a certain number of sets, which only sell for a certain type of theme, like maybe a Star Wars theme. This may end up being a dollar per piece. And that is where the higher cost structure really screwed them. And this is why we shared that Luke Skywalker may have been a savior for some period of time, but in some ways he may have even hurt the Lego company as well. As the author says, by late 2003, 
the Lego Group's leaders finally began to concede that the glowing success of Lego Star Wars was ultimately a thick, fat layer of cosmetics hiding the raw blemishes of a sickly core business. By November of that year, it was apparent that all the rouge and mascara had melted away. Without a Star Wars movie, Lego couldn't reprise the line's explosive growth and sales rapidly lost altitude. So Lego's cost structure is absurdly high. Their sales are plummeting because the popularity of Star Wars and Luke Skywalker, our short-term savior, has waned, unfortunately. And Lego had $800 million in debt as they were close to defaulting at the end of 2003. That year, they suffered a record 1.4 billion kroner in loss. And it says that the company's core financial assets were so eroded that Lego might soon be unable to pay its debts. So here, Josh, were really, really down bad. The Lego company has seemed to exhaust all of its options and Luke Skywalker wasn't the savior, but someone else is. Who comes in to save the company? The man who saves Lego, his name is Jürgen Vig Nutstorp. And he's an incredible leader. He came from McKinsey originally. He spent a few years at McKinsey. I believe he was pursuing a PhD for a number of years before coming in to Lego. And what's really surprising about the leadership transition to Jorgen is that it seemed very serendipitous. He came in to the Lego company around 2001. He was not really as a top leader, like a COO or anything like that. His job was really just to assess the business and start to understand what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong within the company. That is what Kelt had assigned him to. And over the next two years, he went about this job and he came back in 2003 with a number of findings showing that Lego is in serious financial trouble. He basically laid out all the issues that we've discussed so far. Some of the over-leverage issues spread way too thin and simply just not focusing on that core brick business. So he gave this great presentation to the board and at first they really rebuffed him. They didn't believe it was as bad as he was describing. But soon with this Star Wars glare really fading away, that's when the rest of the board had to acknowledge that his presentation may be accurate. It may be painting the real picture of Lego today. So Nutstorp was put in charge of Lego at the age of 36, pretty young for the new CEO of one of the best toy brands in the world. And he said his immediate goal was, well, first, we just have to pay down this debt. We keep talking about the debt. The debt to Lego is like a gun to their head. You know, debt and leverage can be great during the good times. It could juice your returns when you're performing really well. But the fear, especially for a family business like the Christiansons at Lego, is that having this high cost structure, having unprofitable years, that's when the debt can really become concerning. This is when they thought 
we may have to sell our company. They even took some meetings to actually sell Lego. Imagine Lego being owned by someone else, like private equity group. It may be a different Lego than it is today. So Nutstorp, he came in and he decided, we need to try to get as much cash as we can by selling off any assets that aren't relevant. Let's get rid of all these additional ventures and new initiatives, and let's just regain our freedom. And once we regain our freedom, once that debt is gone and we have more financial flexibility, then it was all about how do we become the best in the world at that one thing we can do better than anybody else. So now Nutstorp, once he's able to pay down debt, he's thinking, what gives us a unique monopoly in the business world? Something he would actually ask himself often, I think it's a great framing question for anyone in the business setting, is why do we exist? The practical aspect of this question is, what are we providing to people that no one else can provide? What makes us the best in the world at this one thing that no one else can do? So throughout these years, from 2003 and on, as he was leading the Lego company, as he was trying to turn around the business, he kept asking himself, why do we exist? And this is what would direct him on what initiatives at Lego were core to the business and what they had to scrap. So with Nutstorp's goal of focusing back on the original Lego brick, <laughs> we're not going to get any new Galador action figures or Steven Spielberg life-size Lego sets, right? <laughs> Gone with those initiatives, that's for sure. <laughs> well, right away, Nutstorp did exactly what he said he would, and he cut the fat. With another 2 billion kroner in the hole, they started selling all kinds of assets they'd accumulated over the years, like land and planes and factories, two-thirds of Lego lands to Blackstone and Merlin Entertainment Group for 2.8 billion kroner, in addition to making company cuts. So here, it's all about cutting the fat. And they did a really good job of that. They were 2 billion kroner in the hole, and they made 2.8 billion from the sales of these assets with Nugstorp at the helm. And also at this time, the company gets a boost of Bionicle. I love Bionicle, Josh. I think I had all the sets growing up. No way. Yeah, they would come in those little cylinders and they all had their own storylines that I forget now, but Bionicle was my thing. So I guess I was a Lego guy after all. <laughs> I love to hear it. I, I thought I had to convince you on these, these two podcasts, but glad <laughs> to hear you're part of the Lego squad. See the education here. Bionicle is part of Lego. The more you know. In 2003, the year the rest of Lego came crashing down, Bionicle soaring sales accounted for approximately 25% of the company's total revenue and more than 100% of its profit as the rest of the company was tumbling to a net loss, making it the financial anchor in turbulent times. By the end of the toy's nine-year run, Lego would sell some 190 million Bionicle figures. That's crazy. That's wild. And the important thing to call out here, Josh, is that Bionicle was Lego's first big hit with its own IP. Before, when they would you know, partner with Star Wars, partner with Harry Potter, 
those were all royalty deals or licensing deals, right? And they would pay a fee to Lucasfilm. They would pay a fee to Harry Potter. But this was all owned by Lego. So they would keep 100% of the profits for all the Bionicle sold. Bionicle is the perfect picture of what Nudstorp was trying to do. He was trying to lean back into the original brick, the thing that makes them special, rather than all those side projects that they had become consumed with in the 90s. And he had really taken to heart this idea that instead of trying to be like all your competitors, you want to lean into what makes you different and special. This is something that we touched on in the Danny Meyer episode. You know, Danny Meyer is the famous restaurateur behind Union Square Cafe and many other famous restaurants across New York, numerous different cities. Something that he shared in his book, he emphasized it numerous times, but he shared a specific story where he was talking about dishes in a new restaurant that he wants to open. And he was sharing how the chef wanted to create a form of a tuna tartare dish. And Danny Meyer hears this and immediately he rejects it. Immediately he's like, why should we create some tuna tartare dish when every single Manhattan restaurant has a basic tuna tartare dish. We have to do something that makes us different. We have to give customers a reason to come to us rather than to come to the restaurant across the street that serves their own tuna tartare. So this is kind of the advice he tells his chef. His chef comes back the next day and he brings a unique tuna tartare dish where (laughs) one of the sides is seared and the other side is non-seared. And it, it sounds tasty, right? I, I may want to order some tuna tartare right now. Well, it turns out that no one else was creating this type of tuna tartare dish. And it, it seems like a small change, but it just goes to the effect of he is doing something that makes them different. Danny Meyer knew instinctively, why do we exist? We have to give customers, we have to give people a reason to come to us rather than to come to everyone else. So this is what Nudstorp is trying to establish as well. He knows that there's a big market of kids, and now we know even adults, AFOLs, adult fans of Lego, who love to build. Just because there's technology now doesn't mean that entire market has just evaporated. We have Mm -hmm. to get back to what makes us special. We have to get back to the brick. Another important thing that we learned during this time is that Maybe electronics and the brick aren't mutually exclusive. As they'd say, for Lego kids, video games and bricks weren't mutually exclusive. Just because a kid loved to power away on Xbox, it didn't mean he wouldn't dig into Lego Star Wars. And I think we could only see this fact more true today than back then. I could see how back then it would feel very concerning where it seems like from all corners, you're being surrounded by digital competitors and they're stealing all the attention. Whereas now, in today's day and age, we're surrounded by technology, practically always have a screen in front of your face with your phone, working in front of a laptop. That is given even more reason for people to buy something like Legos because Legos are the opportunity to step away from the screen. This is when you get to actually work with your hands. 
see something go from nothing to completely built, completed. So I think these were some of the early insights that Nudstorp was having that drove him along his early leadership journey. Yeah, definitely. It goes back to that conversation we had before, right? Like, how can you compete? There are different ways you can compete. And at first, the company was going in that direction, like we've seen, of directly competing, developing these digital games, these digital products. But, you know, there are no points awarded for difficulty, as we learned in the past with Morgan Housel, right, Josh? Maybe the, the simple, basic product that you make really well is the one that's going to win out in the end. And that's what's happened so far with Lego. Absolutely. And we see here, although break the mold innovations such as Mindstorms and Lego games garner a lot of attention, the company's most profitable lines are unsexy stalwarts such as Lego City. Refreshing an evergreen line such as City won't generate any headlines, but it significantly plumps up the company's bottom line. So back to the basics, back to making the things that Lego is known for. And in addition to that, they also started talking to customers more and hearing the voice of the customer and taking that voice and implementing it into their products. And again, a simple thing that sometimes companies forget to do when they're so focused on growth, growth, growth. But here with Nutstorp, they go back to these focus groups and they enlisted both children and adult fans of Legos to become new product testers before developing any upcoming sets. So every Lego product development group now uses focus testing with kids to evaluate potential concepts. In most of those tests, a couple of designers introduce kids to a prototype and elicit their reactions with an eye toward gauging the strength of the children's interest in the concept. Again, this is something that every company should be doing. As a designer, I do this. I do this at my company. We call them follow me homes, where we actually go to our customers and see how they use software, what works, what doesn't, what they want to see, what they don't want to see. At the end of the day, those are the people you're selling to, right? So the voice of the customer should shine through in your product. And it does seem very obvious, right, Josh? But it took somebody like Nutstore to get back to these simple truths and actually be effective in making all the employees of Lego execute these simple truths. So in the early 2000s, that wasn't the case, but now we're towards the middle of the 2000s and we're starting to see this shift, this shift in Lego regaining its confidence, potentially regaining its profitability and even expanding at this point, going back to that idea that adults are also welcome in the Lego world. They should also be playing well. Right. I think it helped, certainly, that Nutstorp came from outside of Lego originally. So I think some of those issues during the 90s may have been so ingrained within the Lego company that maybe they couldn't even see the issues at hand. Whereas mm -hmm. Nutstorp, he came in and he was able to clearly see we've lost touch with our customers. We could gain useful feedback from them. We've lost touch with our core unique product the building brick. So one of the other initiatives he did, instead of just talking to children, he started to realize that the adult market is a massive market that they should tap into. 
And this was really the early innings of what Lego calls adults welcome. Now they run a lot of advertising campaigns with this adults welcome slogan, and it's meant to appeal to the large amount of adults that still dominate the toy market. I've read a stat that actually 25% of the toy market is actually adults purchasing for themselves. So we're talking about a pretty significant amount of toys. And even when I look at Lego's product portfolio today, I look at some of their most expensive sets today, and they are $850. Jeez. You may not be getting an $850 set for your kid, maybe a $100 set, but maybe you're much more comfortable splurging like that on yourself. So this was the early innings of this A-full mentality, adult fans of Lego, where Nutsorp would actually go to communions of these fans and hear from them what they wanted from new Lego sets. And he shared a pretty funny idea of how he would really capitalize on this big market opportunity. Under the headline, All Power to the Nerds, he explained that in the future, older children and adult fans would help Lego pick out bestsellers, going by the logic that if Lego nerds love something, other Lego customers would probably like it too. So what he's describing is the initial stages of Lego Ideas. And Lego Ideas is basically this program. It's really interesting, Sancho. I got to send you some of these after. (laughs) I feel like this is something you might have done in your past. I wish I did it myself. Honestly, I, I probably fell out of Lego too early to start designing. This wasn't around when I was a kid, but it lets these super fans of Lego design their own sets and then submit it to Lego Ideas where there's thousands of members. And whenever new sets are submitted, members vote on which sets want to be created into official Lego products. So imagine this. Lego every month is getting hundreds, probably even thousands of submissions from fans for new sets that they want. And then if that set hits 10,000 supporters, that is when Lego actually reviews it to make it become a real set. So once there's 10,000 people saying, we want this set, to Lego, it's like a low-risk endeavor. They've outsourced the design to a fan. They have 10,000 people already that they're like, We will buy this set if you make it. And these are the hardcore fans. So the market is probably even bigger once you get to the casuals. And the benefit to the end designer, this is a super fan of Lego, is that they actually get 1% of the net sales of that set as royalties. So Lego is even paying you 1%, you know, maybe it sounds small, but for Lego, if they're selling like millions of dollars of a set, you know, that could become a nice, small, like a side stream of income that could support some things in your life. I was watching a documentary just this morning and it was actually where they were interviewing this one guy who had his set. He's a designer. He had his set approved for Lego Ideas. And he shared that just three months, one quarter of the royalties could buy him a car. So like, we're not talking about you're becoming a millionaire overnight because you created one of these sets. But 
for a number of years, as long as Lego sells your set, maybe it's a three to five year period, you could be making like some pretty good money and Lego could be making a pretty great set. That's crazy. What idea would you submit, Josh? Oh man, that's a tough one. You're kind of putting me on the spot here, Sancho. I don't know if I'd say I have a true Lego idea set for the masses, but I'm actually excited to say that I am working on my own custom Lego creation right now. I'm not going to reveal too much, except I'll just give one clue that it does have to do with the podcast. And I think it's coming together really nicely. I think it looks really sick so far. So I'm excited to share it soon. It's just not ready yet. And I think it'll make for a very meaningful set for myself and maybe other super fans of Read and Repeat. What about you? What do you think you would make? Nice. I would submit a Lombardi trophy for the Dallas Cowboys. Well, you're living in the 90s, just like old Lego. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Josh. (laughs) Well, that's cool. Adults. Adults are welcome and adults are shaping the future of Lego. I didn't know that part of it. And there's a website here. Is this still around called Rebrickable? Is that where they submit their online, like their own creations? So what's cool is Rebrickable is actually a different website. So now there's been like, you know, plenty of other online communities like built around Lego. Rebrickable is a cool website where people will submit their own creations basically instructions to their own creations. So imagine like what I'm building that has to do with the podcast. If I wanted to submit the instructions to that, which I don't think anyone would pay for because it means more to me. But if I create my instructions, I submit it there, people can go and buy my instructions and make those sets at home. Like some of the sets I saw, if you just pull up the website yourself, you'll see someone designed a Nike store. Or someone designed like pretty cool Ferrari model. So like you could just go on there and check out sets that individuals at home have designed and built themselves. And then you pay like 10 bucks, you go buy the pieces yourself and you could build that set at home. So it's really Mm. cool how this adult community around Lego has been formed through the likes of like Lego ideas that direct relation with the company and these smaller online sites like Rebrickable. Yeah, and it paid off for them too, right? We see that because of all these, because of the idea of getting back to the basics that Nudstorp implemented, they were able to start becoming more and more profitable and actually go back to some of the ideas that weren't successful in the 90s. So now we're at what point, Josh? Like mid-2000s, late 2000s, and Nudstorp actually decides to license a Lego Star Wars video game. And he also leaned in further to Harry Potter IP and launched the popular Mindstorms robotic segment to stabilize the losses and ultimately break even. And at this point, there's a new strategy to license these out to these other companies so that there's less cash for the companies or for, for Lego, I should say, right? And we come up with some of these great creations that I have. I have Lego Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Batman on Wii. I used to play those all the time, but it's funny how we come full circle that you had to go back to the basics before being able to expand more, right? I don't think that's the lesson that Lego is trying to teach us that not to, not to expand into these verticals, 
right? Because we see companies today, Apple's doing everything, Google's doing everything, and they're so successful. But you start off being really good at the basics, right? What, what differentiates you, like you're saying, like, why do we exist? Why does Lego exist? It's because of that core brick business. And once they had that down, Pat, that's when they were able to succeed in these other endeavors. So well said. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it wasn't that those early 90s initiatives were poorly placed. Like you said, now we see Lego video games. We've seen the Lego movie was a big blockbuster hit. I think it almost reached $500 million in the box office. I went to Legoland theme parks as a kid. So all of these were good ideas, but the issue was when they were trying to do it themselves and investing all that cash and it wasn't their primary business, you know, they, they don't actually understand video game creation or they aren't actually experienced as movie producers. That is when they ran into the issues. So once they focused on the core brick, the thing that makes them unique, they were able to drive those profits again. And then, yeah, you could license the great brand of Lego. Now Lego's starting to reestablish themselves as a brand that people want to be associated with. And this is when top studios like TT Games, the company that created some of the video games, or Warner Brothers, the company that created the Lego movie, this is when they will come to you. MIT Media Lab, one of the best technology education schools in the nation, they partnered with Lego to create Lego Mindstorms, the robotics program. So now, now that the core business is stable, now that Lego in those late 2000s, around 2008, even as the Great Recession is starting to kick in, Lego is finally financially stable. Because they got rid of their debt, because they weren't spread too thin now, they had refocused on what makes them different. Yeah. And because of that, they start to grow into one of the most profitable toy companies yet again. Financially speaking, in the years 2008 to 2010, even during the Great Recession, like you said, Josh, those years continued the three previous years' positive trend. The Lego group was back once again. It was one of the world's leading toy manufacturers. And not even the global financial crisis, which gouged a deep mark in the world's economy, had much of an impact on the bottom line. Crazy. It is impressive. Yeah. It says here in 2010, they even hit 4.9 billion kroner in revenue and opened more Lego branded stores to highlight their core product. I remember going to one in downtown Disney growing up, huge Lego store. And every different part of the year, they would have a massive Disney character up front and people would take pictures with them walking down. And the brand was, you know, this was early when I was, God, I would go to the Disneyland in the mid 2000s. So around this time, I guess, Legoland was booming. It was always packed in there. Yeah, I I really like this strategy as they're reaching the end of that decade. They're starting to find some profits yet again. Their sales are growing yet again, even though it's a great financial crisis. Now they decide they want to lean into those Lego branded stores. And this is mm -hmm. something that Akio Morita, the founder of Sony, taught us during his own endeavors with building Sony into a high quality electronics product. So I think there's some parallels here 
where Akio Morita would constantly stress, I want Sony products to be seen as the highest quality electronics products. And we know Lego, their goal often is the same thing in the world of toys. So the big appeal of these Lego branded stores is they let Lego control your initial experience. Like you're saying, Sancho, you walk in and you're amazed at these branded stores. You see a lifelike Disney character made out of Legos. You walk in, you see these cool Lego creations, all the sets on the wall. You're telling your mom, like, please, can we take one home? Like, can I buy one, please? (laughs) This has really become a lot of Legos retail strategy in the modern day. They're now almost at a thousand branded stores. And it's so important because they are directing that experience, that first experience and continual experience with their end customer. And obviously, they're capturing some more of the margin as well. They get to Mm -hmm. control the financial experience and the actual customer experience. Yeah, it's like a candy store for Legos. So at this point, Lego might not be the biggest brand in the world, but it's a whole lot better now than before its savior, Jorgen Vin Nutstorp. Right? Unfortunately, Luke Skywalker wasn't able to do what Nutstorp did for the company. And we have a, a quote here that really summarizes those tactical steps that Nutstorp took to turn Lego around. Lego 1.0 through 2004, Nutstorp and his co-pilot, CFO Jesper Ovison engaged in the first stage fight for survival, where the pair forced the out-of-control rocket that was Lego into a white-knuckle emergency landing. They did so by focusing the company on three must-win battles. First, strip complexity out of the business by taking cost-reducing steps, such as having the number of components in the company's product portfolio, as well as the time it took to develop an idea and bring it to market. Second, restore competitiveness by making retail customers, rather than kids, their primary concern. Boosting retailers' profits and speeding the rate of inventory turnover. Third, raise cash by selling off facets such as Legoland theme parks and carving costs throughout the organization. So Lego 2.0 was setting the company-wide focus on profitable growth. And we see a 13.5% return on sales margin that any new project had to hit. Finally, Lego 3.0 was about relaunching new verticals to boost their organic growth again. And this time we see those new themes, right? Things that didn't work the first time, like Mindstorms Robotics or Ninjago. And all these things that were inspired by the fan groups that we talked about. So while Lego at this point, like we said, isn't the biggest brand in the world, Nutstorp has done so much to get them on path to where they are today, right? It's a respected brand. It's a household name. It's something that might not have been here if Nutstorp didn't take charge and really steer the ship in the right direction. Right, Josh? Absolutely. When I look at Nutstorp's reign, I think a few things are clear. The first is that He likes to focus on the simple and he asks himself, frames himself, the core big questions. The big question I think that we can most take away is asking ourselves, why do we exist? What are we providing to customers that no one else can provide? He kept asking himself that core question 
And that's what guided him into what Lego should be pursuing versus what should be a non-priority, what they should either sell off or maybe later, as we said, get back to on a licensing agreement, kind of shifting the cash investment to another partner. So he was very sharp in that regard of bringing in partners where he wanted to expand and really look into new verticals and keeping the main thing the main thing. The Lego brick is what makes us unique. The Lego brick is our monopoly. It's our differentiator. So that is what's going to lead our company out of this turnaround. And that turnaround, it was actually probably shorter than he even expected. I think he at first had set out like a seven-year plan to get back on track. And it looks like within just five years, the company in 2008 was starting to see profitable growth again. And ever since then, it's been going bonanzas. Now we see Lego yet again has one of the strongest cult followings. It is definitely one of the best brands in the world. No, it's still not the biggest brand in the world. And I hope they never set that target just arbitrarily again. But they definitely have one of the best beloved brands in the world. And that brand has propelled them to record sales, record profits that people probably never would have expected back in those early 2000s, especially when they were competing with digital technology companies that have only become bigger over the last two decades. So Nutstorp, he's actually not the CEO of Lego anymore. He stepped away and stepped into a new role in the late 2010s where he practically became a consigliatore for the Lego family. He actually became the first person to own some of the Lego company without being part of the family and took on a board role rather than the CEO role. Now under Lego's new leadership, they have still been hitting it out of the park with strong financials. So I just want to read some of those stats because I told you in last episode and we told you this episode that Lego is the most profitable toy company in the world, 10 times more profitable than the next closest. Well, here are some of their numbers from their last annual report. This is all in Kroner, but if you want to convert Kroner to dollar, it's about like a 10 to 1 conversion rate. So just imagine you're moving the decimal over one. So their revenue for the last year was 65 billion kroner, or maybe you could say $6.5 billion, roughly. 18 billion kroner in profits, 9.3 billion kroner in free cash flow. This is probably the craziest number to me. A 78% return on invested capital. Talk about unbelievably efficient and profitable growth now. It wasn't unprofitable growth of yesteryear. 17% growth, still steadily growing in 28% operating profit margins. That puts it up with the likes of some of the big tech companies and luxury companies like LVMH. 28%, very strong profit margin, 18 billion in profits, 9.3 billion in free cash flow. Again, this is all in Kroner, so it's scaled down a bit when you look at it in the dollar sense. But Lego has now established themselves as a strong 
dominant company yet again because they leaned in to their unique bricks. Brick by brick, the turnaround of Lego. Makes sense now. (laughs) It does make sense. What a title. So that wraps up the second part of our Lego story. We talked about last episode, the three generations of original Lego founders, the Christiansons, and this went through a lot of the struggles that Lego had to endure as they over-leveraged and over-expanded beyond their core brick business. We saw how sometimes just returning to the simple things is what really can set you apart. And most important of all the lessons in this episode, why do we exist? What are you doing? What are you providing for someone else that no one else can compete with? For Lego, what made them different and special was that little plastic brick. And for you, it may be something else. So I enjoyed this episode so much. I am a huge Lego person, and I think we've converted Sancho a bit as well. I'm a born-again Lego fan. Bionicles back in my tween days, and here again, Josh, all because of you. But that was a good one. I had a great time, and see you next time, I guess. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time.